it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Thursday, March 17th, 2022. It's St. Patrick's Day. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. So happy to have each and every one of you here every day. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, it's also available, the show, in its entirety, around the clock, on demand, for free, on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got a very busy show in store for you here, as we always do, especially these days. This, these news cycles, there's not a slow news day ever. We'll get to our first guest in a moment, coming up later this hour, Senator Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa. We will focus mostly on Ukraine, but a few other issues like inflation we'll try to get to with Senator Ernst. She's coming up. Also, in our next hour, Andy McCarthy, longtime federal prosecutor, terrorism expert. He will have the latest on this Iran deal. More concessions from the Biden administration to Iran and Russia. It just gets worse. Plus, remember that pesky laptop, Hunter Biden, that whole thing that was suppressed right before the election and censored well there's an update we'll bring you the latest on that plus brian Riedel of the manhattan institute his head has exploded this week on some of the absolute whoppers being told by democrats when it comes to federal spending when it comes to deficits and debt i mean it's just a tidal wave of misinformation out there he will set us straight in our final hour here on the program today Let's begin with Dr. Jeanette Neshwat. She's a family and emergency medicine doctor. She's also a Fox News medical contributor. She has been on this program multiple times over the last two years talking about COVID, but she joins us in a very different capacity here as we begin the show. She is joining us live from an emergency field hospital in Lviv, Ukraine, where she has deployed as a physician trying to help people who need it very desperately in that war-torn country. Doctor, it's great to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Guy. It's good to be with you. All right. I am very curious, because I saw on your social media when you were packing your suitcases, literally filled with medical supplies and medicine and that sort of thing, announcing that you were heading over there. How did this all come to be? I think it's a really cool, admirable thing that you've done here. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Guy. I've, I've always, um, you know, been uh, involved in medical disaster relief throughout my medical career. Um, but one thing that really, you know, struck a chord with us is the fact that so many of the refugees are children. And so the Children Our Magical Foundation uh, actually helped sponsor me to be able to get these supplies so that I could come over to this part of the world and help these uh, people that are in desperate need of medical attention and medical care. Because many of them, you know, they've left their homes. Um, some of them have been injured. They've 
run out of their medications, and they have, you know, you know, the war is is going on, but their their medical conditions as well continue to go on. So um, it, it started off with that, um, just wanting to serve and help others, and then I um, I'm also a member of the disaster assistance response team with Samaritan's Purse, and was able to, you know, join with them to help uh, uh, the individual refugees here in Ukraine as well. So um, a lot of team effort, a lot of, you know, logistics, a lot of chaos, but um, we're just trying to help provide some support, some care to the Ukrainian people who are such strong, brave, and courageous people. And we just want them to know that they have our support. And I think everyone should do anything that they possibly can to help, whether it's pray, whether it's donate, whether it's uh, volunteer, should definitely reach out. Not a lot of people race into a war zone. That's what you've done. I know the western part of the country is generally more secure than others, but there have been attacks in the west as well and bombings by the Russians. How did you get into Ukraine logistically? I mean, it seems like it might be a little tricky these days. Yeah, and that's that's a good question. Even here, um, you know, we're in the middle of taking care of patients. I was in the middle of taking care of a child, and the alarms, the sirens went off. So we had to stop what we're doing and all go underground and seek shelter um, until we got the clearance that it was okay to to leave. But um, what we did was, my group, uh, my team, and I, we flew to uh, Poland. We flew to Warsaw. From there, we went to a town called. Uh, Shemesh, and then from there we crossed the border of Madika into Ukraine and then uh, to Lviv, which is, you know, safer, but not 100% safe. And that's why we still have to be careful and take precautions and, you know, listen to any, um, you know, warnings or alarms so that we can take shelter and take cover. What are you seeing, especially among these kids? Is it fear? Is it resignation? Is there resolve among the adults? What are you experiencing uh, you know, emotionally from the people of Ukraine that you're yeah. treating? Yeah, that's that's a great question because that's one of the most common things that I, I'm dealing with right now is um, a lot of fear, a lot of tears, a lot of anxiety, depression. They're traumatized. But uh, it, even even so, Guy, they, such brave, courageous, inspiring people, the Ukrainians, I'm in awe of them. You hear it on TV. You hear it on the news. Oh, they're such strong, resilient people. And it's true. And I'm able to see that firsthand speaking with them, speaking with the refugees, taking care of them. You know, one of my patients that I had uh, earlier this morning, she was in tears, but yet she was so strong. She's so happy that she fled uh, her country, of, I'm sorry, her town of Kiev. Uh, but at the same time, she was saddened uh, to have to leave her home. And she was very, you know, adamant about continuing to stand up for their country, for their for their homes, for their towns, and to fight and to not give up, and it was just a, it was just beautiful to see. But the anxiety, the depression, the trauma—it's it, going to be a real issue, not just the the actual physical aspect of wound injuries, which we're seeing a lot of bruises, cuts, ulcers, lacerations, fractures. Um, I had yesterday. I had a. a, a patient who was having a full-blown uh, heart attack with me uh, today. I had a patient who whose blood pressure was uh, over 200, which is very, very dangerous. That can cause cause a stroke. I had patients who 
you know, are having difficulty breathing, but yet mm. they, they, they continue to fight, they continue to be strong, and, and they won't give up, and it's just incredible to see. And I think that's why it's so important that we don't give up on them and we don't lose our momentum of support and supporting peace and um, pro- providing as much care as possible. Are these people who are from Lviv, or it sounds like they're more refugees, are they f- – the one woman you mentioned left Kiev and came to Lviv. Are these people stopping in Lviv on the way to Poland or other neighboring countries, or are they hoping to shelter and stay in the western part of Ukraine? That, that's a great question. Most, I would say the majority of the uh, patients that I'm seeing, I, I'm working at the, the base of a train station where I literally just watch them hundreds daily, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds coming off the train, down the stairs. And the majority of them um, are from out of town, um, from Kherson, from Kiev, from Sumy. Um, and uh, so they're, they're from all over and they come through Poland to, to get on buses that will take them to places like, you know, Romania or Germany or uh, Poland, um, going to Poland from uh, uh, Ukraine, Lviv. But most of them, I would say, are are out-of-towners who have fled um, the, the, you know, the the bombings and the airstrikes and, you know, being attacked. And a lot of them didn't want to leave, but they saw that the, the, the attacks were becoming more and more, and uh, so they knew that their lives were in danger, and so they had to to get out. But um, and and I'm seeing more and more refugees every day. It's getting busier and busier. How are they linking up with you? If you're at the train station, do you just have like a, a Red Cross medical symbol, and anyone who feels like they need help can can just show up? How, how does that yes, work? Absolutely. And do you have translators? I'd imagine that you probably have something of a language barrier. You need to understand what they're saying in order to, to treat their symptoms. Yeah, so the, they have to go downstairs to get off of the train checks, and we're right there, right at the base in, in a huge tent. And, you know, some of them stop and talk to us because they need to know how to get on a bus or they need water, and some of them need medical care. And, yes, we we'd have amazing, incredible translators who are so helpful to help us, you know, be able to communicate effectively and appropriately. So it's an incredible team that I'm working with and very fortunate and blessed to, to have awesome, you know, nurses and translators and uh, doctors that, that I'm working with. So uh, definitely, a, you know, a well-organized setup, but uh, it's it's definitely not enough. We've got to continue to, to keep going with it and um, keep doing more and keep reading up the supplies that are depleted, you know, within hours at a time. How long are you going to be there for? Is there a discrete period for this deployment or are you there indefinitely? When are you maybe coming home? Yes, so I'm only here for a couple of weeks. With, you know, I do have another full-time job as a physician. I take care right, of patients course. as well in the United States. So um, I, I probably likely will come back again in the future, but uh, I can't stay uh, much, much longer because of my other uh, uh, obligations and commitment as a physician in, in the U.S., but we'll definitely certain, certainly be back out here probably in the next six to eight weeks. Doctor, at the very beginning of this conversation, you mentioned that you are in Lviv, Ukraine, helping these refugees, treating people who need your help, including many children, under the auspices of two organizations. I caught one of them was Samaritan's Purse. I didn't catch the other one. If people want to help, if people want to support what you're doing and other doctors like you are doing, because it sounds like extremely important work for people who need it desperately, 
how can they help? Yeah, absolutely. So especially for the children, the organization that sponsored me is childrenaremagical.org, childrenaremagical.org. You can donate to them. They're sending lots of um, care packages and supplies, book bags filled with supplies specifically for children. And then, of course, um, you can go to samaritanspurse.org as well and learn more about our organization, especially if you want to volunteer. But definitely have to, you know, apply online so that we can um, get you involved and get some more help and hands on board. Well, you are doing God's work, literally. Um, I'm I'm really proud of you. I hope that you stay safe. Uh, you. I know our, our audience here has gotten to know you over the last two years talking about COVID, a very different subject. But uh, look, this is this is why doctors and frontline workers are heroes in their own right. Uh, you're rushing toward the problem to help people in need and just a huge amount of respect from all of us here to you, Dr. Jeanette Nishwat, our colleague, a Fox News medical contributor, joining us from an emergency field hospital, part of a disaster assistance response team as a doctor in Lviv, Ukraine, joining us live. I know it's very late at night over there, doctor. I'm sure you're exhausted. Thank you for doing the interview. Stay safe, please. And we look forward to seeing you home when you can get home. Thank you so much, Guy. You have a good one. That's Dr. Nishwat on The Guy Benson Show. What a way to start the show. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Here's an update on a story we've been watching very closely, and it does not seem to be a happy update. We will get into it a bit later on, as I mentioned at the top, with Andy McCarthy. Here's the headline from the Washington Free Beacon. New Iran agreement would let Russia cash in on $10 billion contract to build nuclear sites. The Biden administration will waive sanctions so Russia can build a contested nuclear plant. So I will remind you that the backdrop to this is, even with Russia invading Ukraine, indiscriminately bombing civilians, and we'll get into some of those details later in the show, they are horrific. And the world, almost all of it, uniting against Russia and the U.S. saying Putin's a pariah, we're doing everything that we can, Short of war with Russia, we're doing everything that we can. Except we're still relying on the Russians and treating their diplomats like they're legitimate as our intermediaries in the negotiation of a new nuclear arrangement with the Iranian regime, which would not prevent that regime from getting a nuclear weapon, by the way. Would not. And along the way, they would get rewarded with tons of sanctions relief. I mean, billions upon billions upon billions, hundreds of billions of dollars all in. Terrorist organizations, banks that fund illegal weapons procurement, some of the worst people and institutions related to Iran 
would get declassified from harmful American lists like terrorist watch lists or terrorist designations, I should say. And then there would be sanctions relief. So they got a nuclear program blessed by the West in the United States with restrictions that expire in just a handful of years, at which point they are a threshold nuclear state. And in exchange for that, we get reportedly basically nothing. They'll be releasing some hostages. They've already done that with uh, some Brits, apparently. The British government unfroze some Iranian assets, hundreds of millions of dollars worth, and then some British nationals were released from Iranian prisons. I wonder if that might incentivize more hostage-taking. What do you think? Now, the hopeful news toward the end of last week was that the Russians, who are, again, doing our bidding, like literally, we are relying on the Russians to talk to the Iranians because the Iranians won't speak to us, And the Russian lead negotiator was bragging. We played the audio for you on this show about how well it's going for the Iranians. The Russians said, well, what what can we get out of this? We want to make sure that we can enrich ourselves, too. So they paused the negotiations, kind of blew them up temporarily, wanting concessions from the United States and the West to make sure that they would not get sanctioned, that they could go make their money, make their bread in Iran. And one diplomat said that was like a hand grenade. Well, guess what's happened? The Biden administration is like, well, okay, we'll give all these concessions to Iran and also to you, Russia. Don't worry. You can make your money in Iran. We won't sanction that at this moment. This would be indefensible ever. It is unthinkable, or at least it should be now. Given what Putin is up to, what he's done. The death and destruction that he's unleashed. We're giving concessions to the death to America regime in Tehran paving the way for their nuclear program and hundreds of billions of dollars to flow to them. And to make sure that we keep that giveaway, that capitulation on track, we're also capitulating to the Russians. And this free beacon story leads with this. Russia's top state-controlled energy company is set to cash in on a $10 billion contract to build out one of Iran's most contested nuclear sites as part of concessions granted in the soon-to-be-announced nuclear agreement that will guarantee sanctions on both countries are lifted, both countries being Iran and Russia. Seems like Iran and Russia are really making out like bandits in this so-called agreement or deal. Sounds like a great deal for them. What are we getting? We're getting a bunch of talking points. They're going to tell us, oh, this prevents an Iranian nuclear weapon. It does not. The reports are we get almost nothing out of this deal. They get everything. And the they includes Moscow, too, now. Doesn't that sound great? This is the Biden administration at work. And we don't even know if Congress is going to have an opportunity to review and vote on this stuff before that money starts flowing over to the Iranian coffers. It is sick, actually. Andy McCarthy on this later. Senator Joni Ernst, when we come back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. All of your program-related needs are dealt with right there, including the free podcast every day, GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa, the first female combat veteran elected to the United States Senate. And it is great to have you back here, Senator. Hey, Guy, it is great to be with you at such an important time, too. No doubt. And I mentioned that part of your bio because you got a little fired up and emotional yesterday. You were there listening to President Zelensky address Congress and you addressed reporters afterwards and you kind of had some stirrings of those emotions going back to your combat days and you got a little a little misty as well. You were clearly moved by what the Ukrainian president said. Absolutely, Guy. Um, I was. And first, you know, I, I am a mom. And to sit in that auditorium and watch the very graphic videos that uh, President Zelensky was playing of the absolute criminal behavior and murderous behavior that's going on uh, by Vladimir Putin and the Russians in Ukraine uh, was just so overwhelming to me. It's so heartbreaking. So that's as, as a mother to see children that have been killed and maimed in the streets in communities in Ukraine. It was horrifying to me. But then the second part of me is a soldier. And that instinct that those of us that have had, and, and even just great patriots across the nation, you know, those stirrings of wanting to be there and help those people, you know, it's just, it was, again, just a heartbreaking experience to listen to this inspirational leader of Ukraine, you know, begging the United States to step up and do more to assist with the things that he knows he needs and to know that our administration is not doing everything that they could be doing. I want to come back to that point in a moment, but you talked about what Putin is responsible for. The president yesterday was asked if he would characterize Vladimir Putin as a war criminal, and he said, yes, he would. The Kremlin has responded furiously to that, saying it's an indefensible thing for a world leader to say. Secretary of State Blinken just within the last hour or so, said that he personally agrees Putin is a war criminal. Do you agree with the president on that front? Absolutely, I agree with the president, and and I wish he would have said this sooner as well. Um, you cannot go into a country and indiscriminately kill women and children, innocent civilians, elderly people, and bomb their homes and hospitals and not be a war criminal. Putin has invaded Ukraine. Make no mistake about it, folks. This man is a war criminal. And, and I think that that will be proven um, if we can get him into, um, into court. That will be, pro- well, will be proven by the international community. 
And it's being proven every day. I mean, it's just yeah. we're seeing that we see it playing out on our screens. I mean, it's it, there's evidence before our very eyes. There was an announcement yesterday following Zelensky's speech to Congress from the Biden administration. They are sending eight hundred million dollars of additional military aid, a lot more missiles and that sort of thing, bullets mm-hmm. even uh, over there. You say it's not enough. I want to play for you an exchange. This happened yesterday at the White House. Our colleague here at Fox, Jackie Heinrich, asked Jen Psaki, why is it that the administration is blocking these fighter jets, the MiGs, from being transferred to the Ukrainians through an American base from Poland? Why is why is that happening, whereas all this other lethal aid continues to go to Ukraine? What's the distinction? Here's how Psaki tried to answer the question. Listen here, cut 24. Can you lay out for us why the administration sees MiGs as provocative and javelins and stingers as not provocative? Well, first, javelins and stingers are defensive weapons. Uh, MiGs or planes are offensive weapons, which are a different type of military system. I would say the other assessment that we've done, not through here, not through the White House, not through the President, from, from the Department of Defense, is to assess what is effective and what works uh, in terms of fighting this war on the ground. Okay, Senator. So I am not an expert the way you are. I'm not a soldier the way you are. But this is a very curious line. They're saying that the javelins and stingers are defensive missiles or defensive weapons. Fine. I mean, they can be used, of course, in a defensive way. And that's what the Ukrainians are doing. But fighter jets are not, unless I'm wrong, you can correct me, they are not sort of inherently offensive weapons. It's not like the Ukrainians would get into these MiGs and fly to Moscow and try to drop bombs on Russia. They'd be using those planes to defend their own airspace from the relentless bombing of the Russians. That seems by definition to be defensive. I I don't really understand this this distinction or delineation that Saki is attempting on behalf of the White House. Well, I don't either. It really does depend on the use of that particular platform or uh, or different type of pieces of equipment on whether it's defensive or offensive. Um, in this case, President Zelensky is asking for MiG-29 fighter jets to control his own airspace. That is defensive. That is defensive. His airspace. He's not talking about flying those MiGs into Russia, not at all. He is defending his sovereign country. And if, uh, if that's not okay, then the administration just needs to say, hey, we're just not okay with you defending yourself. Um, but I fully believe in providing them every opportunity to defend not only their, their ground, they're fighting a good good game on the ground, but also to defend their airspace. Now, whether that's from surface-to-air missiles, um, whatever it happens to be, um, I'm for it. I'm an all-of-the-above gal. Let's make sure that we are giving them everything and every opportunity to defend themselves. And that, to me, includes a portfolio that has MiG-29 fighter jets in it. So we know they have the capabilities to fly them. Um, They do have some MiGs in inventory right now. We should make sure President Zelensky is asking for these. So we should make sure that we are signaling not only to President Zelensky, that if you ask for it, we will provide that. And then in that same way, you are signaling to President Putin 
that what Zelensky, Zelensky asks for to defend his country, we as a United States of America are with him. We are going to provide him the means to defeat you. So I think it's, it's even more about the platform itself. It is more about the symbol of the MiG-29. Just the fact that Poland is willing to transfer those to the Ukrainians and the fact that we would be supportive of that effort and backfilling uh, the Poles with our own mothballed F-16 fighter jets, that is a symbol that the international community stands behind Ukraine, stands behind President Zelensky, and we are with them. And I think that it has been so demoralizing for President Zelensky and probably for the fighters that are inspired by President Zelensky to hear America waffle back and forth, first green lighting the MiGs yep. and then, oh, no, we can't do the MiGs. And, you yeah. know, they have Lincoln waffled. did that. They're so indecisive. Yes, he did. Less than a week ago, less than a week ago, the Secretary of State was on national television with the world watching and said the administration would green light the MiGs and then – a day or two later, they said, actually, never mind. And you have Jen Psaki saying, well, that's because they're offensive weapons. I, that is nonsensical to me yeah, based on the, the explanation that you just gave. Are you encouraged at all, Senator, by reports that the Russians' demands in the ongoing negotiations seem to be getting, I'll put it this way, less unreasonable, right? At the, at the onset of this invasion, this outrageous violation of Ukrainian sovereignty, Putin's like, we're going to take over the country. We're going to get rid of this Nazi regime. It's crazy. But that's the way they were framing it. Mm -hmm. And they thought they were going to just run roughshod over Ukraine and take it over and decapitate the government. That has not happened. Uh, the British intelligence, British uh, defense ministry just put out an assessment saying all of their sort of prongs of their invasion are stalled right now. They have not achieved mm -hmm. any of their major goals. They have not taken any major cities in Ukraine. So it's not going well, to put it very mildly. Thousands and thousands of Russian casualties have been sustained already in just a matter of weeks. So the Russians have apparently backed down to saying in these con these conversations, the reports are, that they would accept the Zelensky government remaining in place. They would accept Ukraine maintaining its own military with alliances, but not NATO. And they're going to want some concessions that I think the West would be uncomfortable with. But it does seem like they've traveled quite a long way, probably out of desperation and necessity. Are things maybe at least moving in the right direction potentially on that front? Yes, Guy. I think they potentially are moving in the right direction. And any number of things could happen in the meantime that would change that trajectory. But what we have seen is a people, the Ukrainian people, with an absolute will and desire to remain free and sovereign. And we have heard this from our administration. Their definition of victory is that Ukraine remain a free and sovereign country. So if that is the definition of success for our administration, we need to do everything we can to enable that. Um, so yep. I do think the Russians are running into some roadblocks, and that's why it's so imperative that we provide them with everything we can at this moment in time yeah. to make sure that they can defeat the Russians. Yeah, press the advantage, weaken Russia's hand yeah. in these negotiations. But yeah. if they're willing to make some concessions, you know, maybe that is the beginning beginning of what could look like an off-ramp to Putin that would be acceptable. And he's going to have to get something in his mind that he can go back to his domestic audience with. But 
it's tricky, but I'm I'm just praying that maybe things are getting a little bit closer to a resolution. It's it's hard to feel that way with all the death happening, though. I mean, that that's clear. I want to ask you, Senator, about a few other issues. Iran. Uh, we just in the last segment read a story from the Washington Free Beacon about the Biden administration apparently again caving this time to Russia during this Iran negotiation. We're already leaning on the Kremlin to do our negotiating with Tehran for us which blows my mind, given everything that we just talked about for the last five minutes. But that's what's happening. The Russians kind of paused the whole deal right before it was going to be announced because they wanted sanctions relief guarantees that they could go make their money in Iran. And now the Biden administration is saying, yes, you may. Don't worry about that. You can do it. Let's get to this deal. Uh, it, It should be stunning. I'm not necessarily stunned because they're fixated on doing this at any cost, apparently. And I don't think we have found a concession that this administration is unwilling to make to Iran or to Russia in the context of this nuclear deal. Yeah, I, I, Guy, where do I start? Um, so the Iran deal, I would encourage this administration to not just walk away from the deal, but to run away from this deal. This is absolutely ludicrous. When President Obama had negotiated this uh, agreement years ago, the Iranians continued to cheat. They didn't follow the terms of the agreement. So what makes us think that they are going to do it again when Biden is uh, negotiating It's a weaker deal. It's an even worse deal this time, apparently. even worse. And the fact that we would shut down Russian oil imports to the United States and then turn to Iran and say, okay, let's negotiate this nuclear agreement. And oh, by the way, we'll lift sanctions on your oil so that you can enter the marketplace again. Um, No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And let's go a little bit beyond that as well. I mean, we see uh, the president negotiating with all kinds of nefarious regimes around the world. We saw them just release another tranche of money to the Taliban and the Haqqani terrorist network in Afghanistan just a few weeks ago. Right, they're down so, in Venezuela begging uh, for their oil. Venezuela. I Come on, folks. I, I have yet to understand this president's foreign policy. It does not make sense to me. Uh, I think that's putting it kindly. You were hinting at the energy issue. We are getting this talking point from the Democrats. Putin's price hike, trying to blame a lot of this stuff, including inflation itself, on Putin. This has been a phenomenon building for a year. I don't think many people are fooled. By that, they're also going to drag up the oil executives to come after them, so big oil can explain themselves. What's happening here? I just wonder what you think of that political game that the Democrats are playing now that they are in total control of Washington D.C. The American people are very upset by what they're seeing, and it seems like the blame game is well underway here. Oh, yeah. And I'll be honest, Guy, the American people are pretty smart. So the American people won't fall for this gaslighting. And so let's just set the record straight there. You are absolutely correct that, you know, very early on, it's been happening for over a year. On day one, the Biden administration curbed U.S. energy production, which caused those gas prices to start hiking up steadily and surely. Um, On day one, of course, uh, Biden stopped the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, He has also banned new drilling. He's created a lot more regulatory red tape. 
and the thing is, he said it. Like he said it out loud. He promised it on the campaign trail in the primary. They're trying to pretend like none of that. Don't pay any attention to the words that he said. Of course, some of this stuff is beyond his control. But some of it is not, and there are some chickens coming home to roost, and they can try to blame others, but the American people are seeing what they're seeing. About a minute left, Senator. I hate to rush this question, but no, okay. the the Violence Against Women Act, I know this is something extremely personal to you. We've talked about why before on this mm-hmm. program. You were able to come together with some senators across the aisle to get this done. Just quickly tell us about that, if you would. Yes, absolutely. I wanted a bill that would become law, not a political talking point for one side or the other. So the bill, now law, it does modernize the resources necessary to meet the evolving needs of our survivors. Um, And so a lot of folks have asked about the gun control issues, and there are no red flag laws in, in this. There are no boyfriend loophole provisions. Um, in this legislation. So we pushed out pretty much all of the uh, gun control measures that were being promoted by the Senate Democrats as well as the House Democrats. They knew that they couldn't have gun legislation in there if they wanted it to get over the finish line. So uh, I think that what we have is a very fair bill that moves forward, protects our survivors, allows them access to resources. It's a consensus bill and a bipartisan bill, and now it's the law. And one of the people really heavily involved in that, Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, my guest here on the show. Senator, always enjoy this. Thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. You bet, Guy. Thank you. God bless. You too. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show, we've got a lot to get to still on the program. Eddie McCarthy to come. Brian Reed will be here and much more. I did want to take this opportunity briefly because we went a little long there with Senator Ernst, although that was worth it. Really good conversation. A lot of different topics. I want to congratulate Bill Barr, the former Attorney General of the United States. His book, One Damn Thing After Another, we had him on the program talking about it on Monday here in studio for the full hour in the 3 o'clock hour. Well, that book, One Damn Thing After Another, debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I think it was terrific. Go watch our interview on YouTube. 200,000-plus views. Listen to it on the podcast. Read the book. Congrats, Mr. Attorney General. Second hour of The Guy Benson Show, next. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Our second of three hours now underway here on the Guy Benson Show. Back in D.C. after a couple days in New York. Glad to be home. Glad to have you here every day, 3 to 6 Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com on this St. Patrick's Day and every day. Podcast is free, whether you're Irish or not. GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and Instagram if you're on social media. Fox News alert as we... Head into this hour. The Dow up again today, 417 points, closing at 34,480. We asked Senator Joni Ernst in the last hour whether or not she agrees with President Biden that Putin, Vladimir Putin, is a war criminal. And she said absolutely she agrees with that assessment. 
And it's hard to disagree at this stage. You've probably seen, if you're following this story closely, the bombing of that theater in Mariupol. There's a theater in the middle of a park. Clearly not in any way, shape, or form a military target. It was being used as a bomb shelter for lots of people, hundreds of people, including many women and children in that city. To make clear that that theater, surrounded by trees, was where innocent people were trying to survive, they marked sort of the the lawn on both sides of this theater with large lettering spelling out the word in Russian, children or kids. Like there are kids here. Children are here as a theater. And then the Russians targeted and bombed it. There were reports initially that somehow there were no casualties, that people were underground. It seemed miraculous. There were a lot of survivors of this bombing because the the footage, the images are sickening. But now I saw just recently in the last couple of minutes, Mike Tobin, our colleague, says that might have been wishful thinking. It does appear that there are casualties. And of course there are. This was being used to house civilians trying to hide from Russian bombs. They said, hey, there are children here. They wrote it in giant letters. And the Russians said, we're going to bomb it. And they did. The bombing of hospitals. The taking of hostages at other hospitals. The shelling and firing of missiles into just apartment buildings, residential neighborhoods. These, of course, are war crimes. Why do I mention this, aside from bringing you updates on what the grim and disgusting reality is, and to once again point out how brutish and truly evil Vladimir Putin is? Those are all worthwhile things. I actually want to continue that thought through a slightly different prism. The United Nations has an organization called the Human Rights Council. Right? This is based in Switzerland. Very neutral. And the Human Rights Council, what they do is they get together to protect, as you might guess from the name, Human rights. That's the ostensible reason that it exists. Now, this has been an organization, this has been a panel that has been an absolute, abject, sick joke for a long time. Based on the member nations, the member states that are elected by the General Assembly, elected by the UN broadly, to serve on the Human Rights Council. And I think this goes to just like the the broader moral bankruptcy at the United Nation, the United Nations. And it's rotating. There are different countries that go on and off. But at the moment, some of the member states on the Human Rights Council at the UN include Cuba, China, Libya, Sudan, and Venezuela. Like some of the worst human rights abuses. I mean, there's been a genocide in Sudan in recent years. There's a genocide happening right now in China. Millions of people in concentration camps. 
These countries are on the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. As I say, a sick joke. You know who else is? Russia. Russia that is bombing civilians and children in hospitals in Ukraine. Russia that is arresting dissidents. Disappearing people, killing journalists. Stopping their own citizens demanding to see their cell phones. Threatening to throw them in prison for 15 years if they speak out against the regime. That Russia. Vladimir Putin's Russia at this minute, literally right now. Vladimir Putin's Russia is a member in good standing, an active member of the Human Rights Council at the United Nations. I would like you to think about that. You've got multiple genocide countries on this. So, I mean, that gives you everything you need to know about what a twisted farce this whole organization is to begin with. But there's a point to this. It's not just, hey, look at the U.N. and their awful human rights council, although that would be a worthwhile endeavor to do like every week. We are the number one funder by far of the U.N. Like, what's the return on investment? I would like to know. Honestly, what is the return on investment? They'd probably do some good work on, like, getting medicine to people and having some peacekeepers when there's not massive corruption and sexual assault and that sort of thing. They've had those scandals at the U.N., but saving some lives there. Like, I'm not sure the U.N. does no good anywhere, but they do an awful lot of nothing for an awful lot of money. And then, of course, they're worse than that a lot of the time as well. I mean, it seems far too often like the United Nations exists just to condemn Israel. Right? You've got countries committing genocide. You've got Russia up to what they're doing. And, yeah, they got condemned. They vetoed, of course, the resolution at the Security Council that might have had some teeth to it because they have a permanent seat and veto power. In fact, during that debate... The presiding officer of the U.N. Security Council about this egregious war being waged by Russia was the Russian ambassador. Russia presided over the Russia debate and then vetoed. So it went to the General Assembly. They passed an overwhelming condemnation. All right, fine. What does that do? Nothing. So you got the Human Rights Council that the Trump administration— And it was National Security Advisor John Bolton at the time. They made the decision, Team Trump, correctly, and we talked about it and I defended it, to withdraw the United States, to get the hell out of the Human Rights Council. Why would we continue to legitimize an utterly illegitimate panel on human rights by sitting on that same stage or, you know, on the same panel with China? And Russia, Venezuela, Sudan, I mean, on and on, Cuba, are you kidding? I mean, it was so cartoonishly ridiculous and insulting that the Trump people said it is not worth putting any American prestige behind this. We are going to withdraw and not recognize it as legitimate. That was the right decision. But the Biden people came in after he was elected. Team smart power was back. The adults were back, and they announced with great fanfare, we are returning to the Human Rights Council under President Biden and Vice President Harris. 
And their excuse, their rationale, their justification was, well, we need American leadership. We need American leadership on that council so we can exert our influence. We shouldn't walk away from the table. We should be at that table fighting for what's right or whatever. Okay, that's the theory. That was the theory prior to that, to continue the American presence in the Human Rights Council. The Trump people finally had enough of it and said, this is so ridiculous, we're out. Biden said, nope, we're back in. Okay, all right. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that it was the right decision. I think it was the wrong decision. But for the sake of this discussion, let's say it was the right decision because American influence was back at the table. Fine. What are they doing with that influence right now? Did you know that by a two-thirds vote in the General Assembly, it's only happened once, but under the rules over there, it would take a two-thirds vote to expel Russia from the Human Rights Council? They had well more than a two-thirds vote of the General Assembly a few days ago condemning Russia for this war that's only gotten worse with more war crimes ever since. Now, you might have some people scurry away when it comes to actually taking some sort of action against Russia, booting them from this council. You probably have some of the other countries that are chronic human rights abusers not voting for this precedent because they want to remain part of the farce. In the future. But has the Biden administration, with all their new influence back legitimizing this panel, has the Biden administration even proposed trying to get a vote to kick Russia off the Human Rights Council, which is an absolute, it, it's making an absolute laughing stock out of a out of a group that is already. A disgusting laughing stock. I mean, this is like next level stuff. If ever there was a moment where the world might unite around something to take action against the Russians, this might be it. I mean, we're doing a lot of stuff in our society that I think goes too far. Right? Like Russian musicians are being banned from concert halls. Even those who have openly criticized Putin in the war, well, they're Russian. They can't perform. We've seen this with like teenage hockey players locked out of things. It's gone too far when it comes to punishing innocent Russians in some cases and canceling them, if you will. I'm all for heavy, heavy pressure on Putin and the government. And yes, that's going to spill over to the Russian people because they have a very bad, evil government. And a lot of them didn't choose that, by the way. This guy's an autocrat. But I think the more you can target the people who are actually doing the evil and not just necessarily fully limited to, but try to get it mostly to land on the government itself, that strikes me as more sensible and more targeted. Well, here's the Russian government sitting as an active member on the Human Rights Council today, right now, as they are just taking a blowtorch to human rights in Ukraine and at home. The United States, under this president, rejoined this panel so we could exert our influence when it really mattered. Well, guess what? It really matters now. Are they lifting a finger to do anything over at the U.N.? I know that they give the speeches at the unit at the Security Council and they oh, we don't like what you're doing and this is very bad. And they whip the votes and then they have the vote and then Russia vetoes it and it's over. Fine. 
Russia couldn't veto this, a General Assembly vote to kick them off the Human Rights Council. Not that they really care, but that at least would be something that the government would be targeted with. And we have not heard a peep from this administration even proposing such a thing. What is the point of the United Nations? What is it? What is the point of American participation? I mean, setting aside all of our taxpayer dollars going to this stuff. What is the point of the Biden administration joining the global community, unlike Trump, and going back into this thing if they're going to do absolutely nothing in the face of one of the gravest affronts to human rights in recent memory? Of course, they've done nothing on China as well. China's doing a genocide. A genocide. Their own State Department says it, right? The Biden State Department says, yes, this is a genocide. China is on the Human Rights Council. I guess that's just what you have to do. That's the cost of doing business at the United Nations. Seems to me that maybe we should be doing less business, if you will, at the United Nations because of that. But the Biden people are, no, more. We're engaging. We're doing more engagement. How's that working in the Human Rights Council? How's that working out for human rights at the moment? So that's an angle to this whole war that I haven't really heard much about, if at all, from anyone. And I was having a conversation last night with someone who pays attention to the U.N., because I guess some people have to. And he's like, hey, did you know this? Do you remember that the Human Rights Council exists, that Russia's on it? Do you know about this two-thirds vote thing? I didn't, admittedly. So I tweeted about it. I wrote about it at townhall.com today. I'm talking about it right now. How about it, Biden administration? You want it back in this Human Rights Council for some reason. Seems like this is your moment to do the influence thing. Are you going to do anything? Or could that maybe, I don't know, disrupt your big plan to use the Russian diplomats to get the Iran nuclear deal that you're so fixated on while giving concessions and billions of dollars to Iran and Russia at the same time. Would that be a complicating factor? So you're just going to sort of not say much at the Human Rights Council? What a brave, what a stunning and brave decision to rejoin that organization. I would love to hear that question put to the Biden team. Can someone ask Jen Psaki, can we circle back there? Maybe I should send a text over to Peter Ducey. I'd love to know their answer. We got a break. It's the Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. Yesterday on the show, we had Bill Malugin talking about the border crisis and the February numbers. Here's another angle on the February numbers at the southern border. And we're not going to let go of this. And if you're a regular listener, you know that it got personal for me a few weeks ago when my in-laws were hit by a drunk driver who was in this country illegally. Should have never been here. And their car was rear-ended by an absolutely hammered illegal immigrant driving drunk. And they're fine, thank God. They had some aches and pains and that sort of thing, but we were already disgusted just on a policy level. Then it got more personal, so these numbers aren't just statistics, are they? So last year, 
And this goes to the enforcement side. We gave you the numbers on, what, a 60-plus percent increase February over February. And last year was already a record-setting year, one of the worst in decades, the worst in decades last year. And the numbers are far worse already this year, far worse. February was up by 60-plus percent in encounters at the southern border. Then there's all the known gotaways, tens of thousands of those. Over the last year as well, ICE arrested 48% fewer illegal immigrant criminals and deported 63% fewer illegal immigrant criminals than the year prior. In the middle of this historic surge, a wave of illegal immigration, numbers going way up, the criminal arrests and deportations were way down. Enforcement is being gutted on purpose. It is a decision that they are making. These elections can't come soon enough. It's the Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com podcast. Free on demand every day. And with us now is Annie McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple books, including Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency, at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, good to have you back. Guy, great to be with you as always. So I want to play you a soundbite. This is a flashback. CBS News, April 2021. Hunter Biden was hawking his memoir because he has time to write books and do all of his paintings and that sort of thing. He's made an awful lot of money in a lot of different ways in places like Ukraine and China. It's been sort of fascinating given his uh, expertise, whatever that might be, uh, and his relevant work experience, whatever that might be. But he was asked about that infamous laptop that became an issue at the very end of the 2020 campaign. And here's what he said. Cut 25. Was that your laptop? For real, I don't know. I know, but, but you know that this is. I a... really don't know okay. what the answer is. That's you don't know yes answer. or no if the laptop. I don't have was any yours. idea. I have no idea. So could have been yours. Of course, certainly, it, 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 there could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me. There could be that I was hacked. It could be that it was the that it was Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me. Okay, it could be a lot of things. Apparently, I have no idea. No idea if that laptop was real. Well. The New York Times uh, is confirming now what the New York Post reported back then, which is it was real. It was his laptop. The contents are authenticated. And you'll remember as well as anyone else, Andy, when that New York Post story came onto the scene and was published right before the election, I think it was roughly October of 2020, the media went crazy. The Biden campaign simply stated They asserted this is Russian propaganda, Russian misinformation, disinformation. It's a fake planted by the Kremlin. They were able to get 50 former intelligence officers, including some familiar names, to sign a big letter saying, oh, yes, this is Russia. This has all the hallmarks of Russia. And the media said, "Okay, we're going to all salute. We're going to say this is Russia. We're going to take Biden's word for it. 
We're not going to let this be Hillary's emails 2.0, even though that was a real scandal. We don't want to let Trump win this election again. So we are going to not report on this. We're not going to take this seriously at all. Big tech, if you guys could go ahead and throttle that story, censor it, you know, downgrade it, that'd be great. That, of course, happened as well. The New York Post, their entire Twitter account, the oldest newspaper in the country, had its Twitter account suspended entirely, the whole thing, for days on end as punishment for this, this, uh, this terrible act which turned out to be committing accurate journalism. And now I guess now that the New York Times can confirm it, years later, it's okay. And we're seeing some astonishment from some of the blue checkmark media. Wow. Andy, this thing reeked to high heaven from the very beginning. And you can hear in my voice probably this really ticks me off. Not that I have any special, you know, thing for Hunter Biden or any, you know, I'm carrying any water on behalf of the Trump campaign. I am still furious at the way a legitimate news story was actively and deliberately suppressed on the say-so of a Democratic political campaign to protect that campaign from vulnerabilities at the highest levels of the intelligence community and the mainstream media and big tech. And now it's sort of like, oh, safely a year plus after his election, the New York Times is like, oh, oops, actually it was real. And it was in like paragraph 27 of their story. All right, I'll shut up and let you react. Well, Guy, there's nothing uh, that you said to disagree with. I would would just say that, you know, when people say, you know, they scoff at the notion that there's such a thing as the deep state, um, this is like a classic example of when these – forces decide to rally around a, a, uh, a narrative uh, or to bury one, uh, they're very effective at doing it. And they called in uh, all of the cavalry on this one. Uh, I don't think for what it's worth that the Times just idly picked today to on page A20 uh, – of the newspaper uh, run this 1,700-word story written by three of their uh, star reporters in which, as you point out, uh, this is paragraph 23 or 27 or whatever it was that they by and by mentioned the, the uh, laptop. Uh, by the way, I thought the story was hilarious because they made like the important thing of the story was that Hunter had already paid his taxes back as if that had anything to do with, with anything. Um, Where'd that money come from? I mean, yeah, but, you know, it's it's also irrelevant. It wouldn't even be relevant to a tax charge because it's not a defense to, to, you know, to tax evasion that you uh, that you pay the money back. So So, you caught me. All right. Here's it. Let me write a check and make it all go away. (laughs) Works for bank robbery, too. Right. Um, Oh, I I still have the cash here. It's right in the bag. Right, all the blue dye exploded, but can you take it back? Let's call it even. I'll go to get a smoothie, and then we'll call it a day. Right, that's not really how this I'll works. A, maybe I'll do a painting, you know. Um, right, but, right. Like, they're very valuable, Andy, collateral. They're I mean, they're, they're, what, they're worth half a million dollars. I mean, this guy's expertise was worth millions of dollars in Ukraine in the energy industry where he had no experience, and his – his business acumen was worth millions of dollars, including maybe some set of set aside for the big guy in China, even though there was nothing on this guy's resume aside from his last name that would indicate he had anything close to millions of dollars worth of 
knowledge or know-how or anything like that. These paintings are being sold for six figures or, you know, from this amazing artist. I mean, it, it's so it's so transparent that this guy's been trading on his family name, making a bunch of money over the course of all of these various deals, and that was deemed untouchable by the political press in 2020 because, pure and simple, they wanted Joe Biden to beat Donald Trump. And so they were they had PTSD from the Hillary email scandal story, uh, which definitely damaged her. Her conduct damaged her. And they were very guilty and flogging themselves for covering it at all. Oh, we're so sorry. You know, we're we're we're, we're doing penance. We're never going to do that again. And they all got together and and put that into practice. They were not going to do it again. So they didn't. Yeah, I think that's all right. And uh, the only thing I can add to it is that I don't think it's a, I don't think it's idle or I don't think it's just random that this story suddenly appeared uh, interred as it was uh, in the New York Times today. I, I you know, they would have left this to be forgotten forever, it seems to me, unless they expect that there's going to be new developments in the story. Well, there's a federal investigation. Short order. Right. There's a federal investigation right. into Hunter Biden ongoing. It actually has been going on for years. Bill Barr, we had him on the show earlier this week for a full hour. He reveals in the book that it had been going on for quite some time. He knew about its existence as the AG. He didn't tell the White House because that would have been extremely inappropriate. But that investigation is still ongoing. I wonder if the New York Times, as you were kind of suggesting, is trying to get out in front of this, being like, oh, there could be some worse stuff to come for Hunter Biden. It's going to make all of us look even worse. So let's start at least pretending like we have interest in this story, uh, which we didn't back then, but maybe we can kind of limit some of that damage now. That's not a bad theory, Andy, I have to say. Well, also, Guy, if you read the story closely, the, one of the intriguing aspects of it is the Times seems to be very well informed about the internal divisions and debating that's going on within the Justice Department uh, about what charges to bring and whether, uh, whether, for example, to bring a criminal foreign agent registration act case or whether that should be handled civilly. And if that gets handled civilly, then if you don't have that crime, what does that do to the money laundering part of the investigation. It just seemed to be reading it that the Times seems awfully well informed about what the prosecutors are thinking. And I can't think that it's a coincidence having that knowledge uh, that they suddenly decided to to uh, basically resuscitate a story that as far as they were concerned, if it ever even existed, it was long dead. So yeah, I, I think not. something's cooking. Otherwise, they wouldn't have reported it. Yeah, uh, that that makes sense. I'd also just add Joe Biden was asked as a candidate by Peter Ducey, our colleague who was covering his campaign at the time, if he had any knowledge of any of this stuff related to his uh, son Hunter's foreign dealings. And we got a totally blanket, categorical denial. Biden knew nothing about any of it. Well, we have that's clearly established to be not true. We have witnesses who say, no, he, he absolutely knew quite a lot about some of these things. No knowledge is, is laughable. There are the emails about, you know, set-asides for the big guy and, you know, large dollar amounts. I mean, all of that stuff is absolutely fair game. Political fodder, uh, perhaps beyond just a political criticism, but that was not allowed 
in the fall of 2020 because there were more important things. There were more important things for the country, which was winning an election and the media and big tech. And they all got together in these. I mean, every single name who signed on to that thing saying, oh, yes, this is Russian disinformation just to parrot what the Biden campaign was saying, to telegraph to the media, these are your marching orders. You're going to kill this story and, and shut up about it. Every single person who lent their credibility to pin this on Russia should be embarrassed and should not be taken seriously in the future. But I feel like there's almost no accountability ever on any of that stuff. And it's very frustrating. Andy, I want to get to another topic here, though, before we run out of time. We've got a few minutes left. I asked Senator Ernst about this earlier in the show. And I also read from a Washington Free Beacon piece about this earlier in the show. I know that you have also written about it at National Review, the Iran deal, this Iran negotiation that three of Biden's own negotiators have already walked away from in protest. It's been so outrageous. There was this brief moment of hope maybe that the Russians were going to actually blow it up by overplaying their hand, asking for a bunch of concessions on sanctions for themselves. And it seemed like it paused things for a little while. And then the Biden team said, oh, we are so obsessed with giving Iran a nuclear program and giving them hundreds of billions of dollars and getting basically nothing in response. We are so obsessed with doing that that let's give another concession here, this time to Russia in the middle of the war that they're waging against Ukraine. I I mean, I'm almost speechless that they are doing this at this moment in time, but they are. Well, yeah. And in fact, I I think I wrote about a week ago that Putin was really trolling Biden here because you couldn't do the Ukraine deal as it's structured and, and defend the Ukraine sanctions and putin knew that so the the iran deal you couldn't do the iran deal you could uh, right the iran deal you could not do and also do the ukraine sanctions they had to be insulated from the ukraine sanctions in order to make the given the key role that russia has in the iran deal but you couldn't have both so putin knows that and what he asked biden for was a written guarantee he didn't really need a written guarantee He, he would have the iran deal uh, but he wanted to basically troll and taunt Biden because he knows how badly Biden wants to deal. And, of course, what the administration did at that time uh, was basically reel a little bit and then call a timeout, which they I think they called a strategic pause in the negotiations. And then what we find out, uh, based on the Washington Free Beacon's reporting last night, is that while Biden wouldn't give Putin the written guarantee that he demanded – he sent a State Department spokesman, Neil, Ned Price, tootling out to make a statement that essentially told Russia exactly what Russia wanted in writing, which was, of course, we're not going to use the uh, Ukraine sanctions to prevent Russia from performing its key role in the new Iran deal, which they maintain, by the way, is not a new deal. It's a it's a revival of the old deal, which it's uh, well, it is. And we've discussed story. You and I yeah. discussed that. It, it absolutely is a new deal. It is far worse. Uh, Russia would actually get their their huge state-run oil company, gets a $10 billion project building a facility for Iran. So there's, there's a huge financial interest. We are actually fueling Russia's economy. We are helping them to the tune of billions of dollars in Iran in order for them to negotiate on our behalf – 
So we have the honor of giving Iran also billions of dollars in exchange for them getting a nuclear program. I mean, I mean, it's what? It, it's, it's just shocking. While Biden runs around saying that Putin's a war criminal, so he's a war criminal. Let's let's give him Iran's enriched uranium. Then isn't that a great idea? And we'll have him be our front person with the world's leading state sponsor of anti-American terrorism, whose patron, longtime patron, by the way, is Iran. Uh, is Russia? I mean, you can't even make it up. You, you just and you can't even make it. Up. I mean, it's. It, I'm trying to find some sort of logical explanation for a lot of this. I mean, the abject failures of this president on almost every single front has been breathtaking. Some people are saying, oh, he's doing a good job on the Ukraine war. I think he's done some good things. And when he does, I praise him. To say that this is some master class, I think, is a preposterous, uh, preposterous hyperbole. Everything else... Iran, Afghanistan, uh, China, and then everything here at home, energy, inflation. I mean, the the list goes on. There's a reason why this this guy's approval ratings are where they are, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And I actually think even on the Ukraine war guy, he's had a lot of reluctance to to supply uh, Ukraine with the kind of weaponry. Yeah, it's true. He's been he's been dragged by Congress and the Europeans into things. Yeah, but I don't think we can disaggregate these two things. Putin is very important to him in connection with this Iran deal that he desperately wants. I don't think we can say that we'll put that in a nice box and we won't consider that when we're thinking about why has he been reluctant on the weapons front with Ukraine. Yeah, I just don't it'd be one thing, and, and I'll, I'll leave it at this, Andy. It'd be one thing if the Iran nuclear deal prevented them from getting a nuclear weapon. It will not, as Even Barack Obama basically admitted about the old deal, which was extremely bad, but not as bad as the reported new one. And it seems like the only reason why Joe Biden would be so desperate for this new deal to go through is because it's checking a box of not Trump. We've got to if it was Obama and not Trump, we've got to do the Obama thing and not the Trump thing. And if that means giving the mullahs a nuclear program, well, damn it, we're going to do it. I mean, the, the priorities here are just mind-blowing. I'm up on a break, Andy. I've gone long already. Andy McCarthy on The Guy Benson Show. Andy, thank you. Thanks, Guy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. A little St. Patty's Day flair on The Guy Benson Show. So Politico did a poll on that Florida LGBT parents' rights bill which on balance I'm against. I gave my reasons why. They're not the normal reasons and the hysterics that we've heard. I think there's some good stuff in the bill, too. I did a whole monologue on it. I've written about it. You can go check that out if you're curious. But they polled it, and they polled on the issue, like K through 3, sexual orientation, gender identity instruction. Do you support the ban in Florida on that? And a majority said yes. 35% opposed that bill. Stupid way to fight it. That's what they decided to do. And there are your poll results. A majority in favor of the bill. Another hour. Final hour coming up. Guy Benson Show.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time now for the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show from D.C. and the Tony Snow Radio Studios. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com podcast, always free of charge every day, on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. On social, it's at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. We will bring some to our friend's house this weekend. It's really good. You should try it if you haven't, if you're 21-plus only. We always encourage everyone to drink responsibly, and we announced earlier this week the addition of four new states where the long drink is coming, Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Nebraska. So we've got some regular guests from those states. We had Senator Ernst on just today in Iowa. Cocaine Mitch McConnell can now crack open a nice cold long drink in Kentucky. Let's see, Steve Scalise. From Louisiana and Ben Sass from Nebraska. There you go. There are your states where the long drink is coming now. In addition to all the other places where it's already expanded, thelongdrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you. Give it a try, thelongdrink.com, or you can order online. Joining us now is Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And he was having just a head explosion on Twitter this week, and so I decided... Let's get him on the radio to uh, do further explosions. And, Brian, it's good to have you back. Glad to be back. I'm glad my rage tweeting is becoming productive. <laughs> well, in this case it was because the president the White House is putting out a series of their own propaganda tweets. I guess they've decided that they've got this opportunity, and he did this at the State of the Union to some extent as well, to try to pretend that what this presidency is really about is deficit reduction. And I mean, it's it's uh, you laugh. You have to laugh because it's so absurd on its face, given everything that they have done. They just tried to spend an additional five trillion dollars and build back better failed. But they wanted to. They're like, oh, how about uh, let's do debt and deficit reduction. Now, what are they claiming here, Brian? And what's the reality? Yeah, the the White House is claiming we've cut the deficit a trillion dollars. They didn't do anything. All that happened was much of the pandemic spending from 2020 simply expired on schedule as it was supposed to. And in fact, they didn't even let all of it expire. They did a $1.2 trillion American rescue plan last year. They did an infrastructure bill that's going to add a couple hundred billion dollars in deficits. And the latest bill that just got signed, the omnibus bill, had a 10% increase in discretionary spending. So all they did was take credit for pandemic spending expiring on schedule, even when they undermined the expiration by backfilling about half of it in new spending and trying to do even more um, with Build Back Better, as you suggested. So, in other words, the deficit fell slightly on its own, with President Biden doing everything he could to minimize how much it fell on its, on its own. And the thing is, the deficit you you might know off the top of your head, I don't. The deficit last year was just astronomical, and in 2022, be, because of 
this massive global emergency. We've got almost a million Americans dead. There was trillions of dollars worth of spending going out, the just shoveling trillions out the door because they were shutting down the economy and you needed vaccines and all this stuff. You can make the argument a lot of that was badly spent. A lot of it was, but it was massively elevated emergency spending because of a pandemic to the tune of trillions. And then when that expires with the pandemic going away and you don't continue the insane elevated you know, pandemic spending, they're like, well, look at this deficit reduction we've achieved. I mean, it's it's insulting. Yeah, the easiest way to, in, to to claim to be a deficit hero is just increase it by two trillion dollars first, and then <laughs> only renew half of it. You know, uh-huh. even this year, with the deficit Biden's claiming credit for, it's still going to be the third highest deficit in American history by nominal dollars. Um, it was nine hundred and eighty dollars before. I'm sorry, no, it was nine hundred eighty billion before the pandemic. It spiked to three point one trillion. Then 2.7 trillion, and this year it's going to be about 1.3 trillion. So it's still much higher than it was before the pandemic, and it's not. We're not even. We're, it's not even going all the way back down. It's still going to be the third trillion dollar debt ever. But yet, but yeah, Biden's claiming credit, saying, "Well, it's not as high as it was at the peak of the pandemic." Well, of course, the pandemic's mostly over. And just to clarify, we're talking about the third consecutive year where the government will spend well over $1 trillion more than it takes in. And this is despite, what, record tax receipts, right? Tax revenues have come in from corporate America, from individuals. I mean, the the tax cuts they said were terrible, 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 would starve the government. Well, we have all-time high tax revenues, and yet we're still spending a trillion-plus more than those record revenues are bringing in. Seems like there's a problem here, and it's not revenue, as usual. Exactly. Last year, revenues topped 18% of GDP for the first time since 2000, back in 2000 when the bubble economy was pushing them higher. It was the best tax revenue year in 21 years, even adjusted for inflation and economic growth. It was the best in 21 years. But it still couldn't keep up when, the, just as the pandemic spending is expiring, the president does his $1.2 trillion American Rescue Plan. He does, again, the, the infrastructure bill that wasn't fully paid for. And then like, and he wanted like, BBB. He wanted $5 trillion he five more trillion dollars. More. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It, so, it, it... Go ahead. Yeah, if, if, he, if, he, if the president has his way, we're going to have trillion-dollar deficits as far as the eye can see, heading towards $2 trillion by the end of the decade. So it's only his legislative failure to pass his full agenda that's keeping the deficit dropping at all. So we had this from uh, Speaker Pelosi this week. I played it already once on the air. I want to play it for you. Cut 26. Here's Pelosi. So when we're having this discussion, it's important to dispel some of those who say, well, it's the government spending. No, it isn't. The government spending is doing the exact reverse, reducing the national debt. It is not inflationary. So she makes two claims there that all of this massive record-level federal spending is not inflationary, so it has nothing to do with the inflation, and all this government spending, Brian, also is reducing the national debt, she says. Like, what? 
it makes no sense. I mean, first off, uh, almost any economist will tell you, the American Rescue Plan in particular, we shot a $1.2 trillion bazooka at a $400 billion output gap, which means once output maxes out, the other money just goes purely to inflation. As for the claim that government spending is reducing inflation, my head exploded. Um, I'm sorry, government spending is reducing uh, uh, inflation or the deficit, any of it. My head exploded. Well, the debt, the um, national debt, she said. She said the national debt is being reduced by the government spending. The national debt has not gone down uh, what, ever. I mean, <laughs> the national debt is pointed one direction, and it is steeper in that direction with all this government spending. She's saying it's bringing down the national debt just, just flagrantly, completely, unspinably false. Yeah, I mean, she's simply making up math and making up claims that can be demonstrably disproven in 20 seconds. The debt is rising. It's been rising for decades. It rises because spending outpaces tax revenues. That's the simple mathematical identity. So, it's just the adding up of all the deficits, what she's talking right? About. right. We talk about we talk about annual deficits, which is what we were previously talking about. So every year we've got these deficits. They're massive right now because of the covid spending. They were already way too high because of overspending from both parties. And it's a trillion dollars plus this year coming up. When you add all of that together, that's the national debt, which is just up, up and away in a totally unsustainable way. And she's saying that it's reducing the, the national debt. And it's not inflationary. And Secretary Buttigieg, by the way, said she's right about this. And he's supposedly one of the, uh, you know, thoughtful, cerebral, smart ones over there. Yeah, I mean, but this is this is the partisan gaslighting that they can kind of say whatever they want. And they know that their partisans in the media and on social media are going to jump at their defense no matter what they say. They can create whatever alternative reality they want, and they know they're not going to be called on it. This is just like when, when President Biden was saying that, that Build Back Better was going to cost nothing, which is laughable. I mean, it, it's, it's oh, like yeah. saying that I forgot the about that. That was a good one. Purple. Yeah, that was exactly. a good one. And, and and this is this is what they say, and they don't get called out on it, and and they get away with it. All right, last topic here, and I've been banging on this for a couple days now. There was an ABC News story that reported what the White House is telling Capitol Hill, which is we are we have no choice. We have to start cutting back the COVID relief stuff. We have to, you know, produce fewer and provide fewer tests to people. We've got to cut the uh, the vaccine stuff loose from the uninsured. We've got to order and distribute fewer of these monoclonal antibody treatments because, sorry, we're just we're just out of money. We're running out of money on this covid relief stuff. And these Republicans in Congress are holding up this money. So unless they uh, spend it, we're just going to have to make these draconian cuts on covid relief. Uh, Pelosi said something again similar to uh, today. I'm like, we spent six trillion dollars a lot of which has not actually been spent yet, a lot of which is allocated for non-COVID stuff, even though it was sold as COVID stuff. There are trillions of dollars still in that pot floating out there, and they're they're telling us that they're out of money and we, they need more on this. 30 seconds, Brian. It, it, it makes me angry, obviously. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've spent twice as much on COVID as we had on the New Deal, five or six trillion dollars. Only $300 billion of that was actually allocated to public health. The rest, a lot of it went to bailouts 
uh, to unions. It went to, to checks. It went to $350 billion state governments are still sitting right, on. And now they need more, they say. Now we need a lot more because $6 trillion apparently wasn't enough. What a, an admission, really, of failure. Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute on The Guy Benson Show. Brian, always appreciate it. We'll be right back. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. We've got a doozy of a topic or two from the home stretch coming up, so you want to stay tuned for that. Let's get to this story, which is absolutely in the bucket of Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Just a pathetic display in New Haven, Connecticut at Yale. Yale Law School. So these are the future elite attorneys of tomorrow. Headline from the Washington Free Beacon, hundreds of Yale law students disrupt bipartisan free speech event. Isn't that perfect? More than 100 students at Yale Law School attempted to shout down a bipartisan panel on civil liberties, intimidating attendees and causing so much chaos that police were eventually called to escort panelists out of the building. The March 10th panel hosted by the Yale Federalist Society, featured Monica Miller of the Progressive American Humanist Association and Kristen Wagner of the Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative nonprofit that promotes religious liberty. Both groups had taken the same side in a 2021 Supreme Court case involving legal remedies for First Amendment violations. The purpose of the panel, a member of the Federalist Society said, was to illustrate that a liberal atheist and a conservative Christian could find common ground on free speech issues. But despite this very innocuous topic, that didn't stop nearly 120 students from crowding into the event and disrupting it. They were shouting. They were cursing. They stood up to antagonize the speakers. One protester told one of the conservatives present that she would, quote, literally fight you, B-word, With the fracas intensifying, one of the law professors at Yale reminded students of the free speech policies on campus. When protesters heckled her in response, several with middle fingers raised, she told them to, quote, grow up. The comment elicited jeers and anger from the crowd. The professor said, I'm going to have to ask you to leave or help you leave And when I guess the police were called in to eject these disruptors, uh, one of them screamed, F.U. FedSoc, meaning Federalist Society, while being let out. They were stomping, shouting, clapping, singing and pounding on walls to make it impossible for regular attendees to hear the panel. Again, this is a panel across the ideological spectrum about free speech. And. Well over 100 Yale law students. These are like the elites. The elites of tomorrow for sure. They reacted to the free speech panel like this. Just listen. Yeah, so and on and on it went. And on and on it went. These are children. 
these people are pathetic. They were violating the free speech policies of Yale, confident that Yale will do absolutely nothing about it because they're afraid of these people. The wokes count on and smell the fear of administrators to stand up and enforce basic codes of conduct. It is frightening that these people are going to be influential, powerful people in the future. And this is the radicalization of the elite left, especially the younger generation, that is going to have ramifications for years in our society. By the way, I did see, and I enjoyed this, a federal judge, a pretty prominent one, put out a memo and cc'd a bunch of appellate judges all across the country saying that he hopes the disruptors, right, the members of this mob, will be identified and listed somewhere so that judges can make the determination not to offer those people clerkships in the future. Because these kids are all after clerkships. They are very, very sought after and prestigious. And maybe if you can put a little bit of fear into them that there might actually be consequences for being aggressively hostile to free speech, deeply intolerant of the spirit of the First Amendment and pluralism and open discourse. They don't actually believe in those things, obviously, as core values, but if it might interfere with their ability to move up the chain, if it might hinder their career ambitions, and these are a bunch of highly ambitious people, maybe that would be a behavior modifier. And you've got to come after these kids one way or another. Otherwise, they win. And if they keep notching wins, it incentivizes more of this madness. The adults in the room have to say no, and at least the professor there did. She was one of the few people in that room, including the panelists, who did not make total asses of themselves. Congratulations, Yale Law School. What a bleep show. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. Matt Finn with the latest on the Jussie Smollett case. Oh, there's an update. We'll get to that next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show on this St. Patrick's Day. I'm not Irish at all, but many of you are or pretend to be on this day. So for those who celebrate, happy St. Patrick's Day. Joining us now is Matt Finn, Fox News national correspondent. We had him on just last week talking about a development in the Jussie Smollett saga. He was sentenced to jail time and other forms of restitution. Well, an update as of last night. All right, Matt, what happened? Yesterday, Jussie Smollett was released from the Cook County Jail after serving just six days in which he claims only to have drink water. He says he had not eaten any food in jail. Uh, Jussie's team filed an appeal with an appellate court, and they won. They argued that Jussie Smollett deserves to be released pending an appeal. And the appeals court agreed, uh, writing in part that Smollett was locked up on nonviolent crimes uh, and that he would probably serve as an entire 150-day sentence before the appeals court could get to him. So Smollett walked out of jail 
uh, yesterday. And it was funny because when I was on last week, you and I said, well, this could be the final chapter, his sentencing. But I think that we both left room for something like this to happen. And here we are. Yep. Yes. So just to be clear, the sentence has not been altered. He's not been released after less than a week. It's like, OK, time served. They're letting him out basically on his own recognizance, pending the appeal process, and assuming his appeals fail, he will still have that sentence to deal with, yes, down the line? Correct. Correct. Okay. All right. So a couple things. Uh, Number one, you mentioned that he had only been drinking water. Was this a hunger strike? Was this him being suspicious of the food that someone might try to poison him because he was talking sort of in a strange way, kind of a paranoid way about some of that? Uh, could not someone poison water if that was their intent? What was going on there? I'm not entirely sure, but his attorney yesterday outside of the jail said that Jesse has only drank cold water, uh, that he has not eaten any food. I'm sure it was intentional. I'm not sure the exact reasons why. Uh, And Jesse's attorney also said that when he found out he was going to be released yesterday, he, quote, pushed his hands up on those glass dividers inside of jail, became teary-eyed to his attorney and said he nearly lost hope in the constitutional system. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, this drama queen is just beyond belief. And you know what? Maybe it was just the hottest diet trend, the Cook County jail cleanse. I mean, maybe that's what Jesse was up to. Uh, question number two here for you, Matt. It might be three. I'm not really counting properly. It's Jesse Smollett. It, it's not to be taken that seriously because of the clownishness of him, not because of what he did. That was a serious crime. Um, There were some allegations that we saw from his attorneys or from his family that Smollett was receiving threats of some sort uh, while in jail. Uh, Is that true to your knowledge? And also, can you confirm if those threats were perhaps written in his own handwriting? You know, I saw on uh, FoxNews.com and other websites that one family member, I believe his sister, did receive a threatening voicemail. Uh, and that, you know, it kind of was a homophobic or, or um, perhaps racist voicemail. Was it Jesse Smollett's so, voice, slightly disguised? I cannot confirm. I, not, I do not know. Of course okay, I'm just curious. Inquiring minds are curious, Matt. Inquiring sure. minds are curious. Sure. Well, I mean, as you know, when he was incarcerated last week, he was insisting he's not suicidal. So that was already there. They were already planning to see that if anything happens to him, if he gets any threats, he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. OK, here's another one. Some other folks have asked a similar question here. Is Smollett perhaps concerned for his own safety now because the person responsible for his original attack has been released from jail? I have seen a lot of memes online, a lot of people joking that, yes, Jesse Smollett's attacker is back on the street. So I wish him well. Yeah. I mean, look, like O.J. Simpson, he might spend this time now that he's out waiting for this appeal to play out. He could spend that time and put it to good use trying to find the real person responsible for the attacks. And, I mean, that person might be a lot closer. That person might be inside the house, so to speak. Uh, Look, at some point you have to mock this person. It's ridiculous. It's preposterous. I will finish with an actual serious question, and you've been a very good sport being a journalist while I'm just teeing off here. Uh, What is the actual timeline? Because I think people do want to see justice served. Uh, The sentence was at least a major step in that direction. Now there's this uh, contingent release. 
Is there a realistic time frame? Because I'd imagine there's probably a backlog of a lot of cases due to COVID. This is a high-priority case because it's high-profile, and I would say the toxicity of faking hate crimes. But it's also, as you noted, a nonviolent offense. This was not a rape. This was not a murder. Do we have any sense of when this could get on the calendar and this might finally get resolved? You know, as far as the timeline goes, I'll put it this way. The appellate court said that they probably could not complete his appeal before he finished that 150-day sentence. So I don't know that this is going to move that quickly. Uh, the attorney said that they'll now go through a, quote, regular appeal process. Okay. Okay. So that it's sounding like that would be months at the least. Yes. Right. Correct. Okay. All right. Well, we'll keep watching it. I know you will closely. And at some point, the appeal will arrive And we will likely have you back then to talk about what happens in court as this goes on and on. The Jussie Smollett story not done yet. Matt Finn, national correspondent at Fox News. Matt, appreciate it. Thanks. Happy St. Patrick's Day. You too. And the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour wraps up with the home stretch. A little St. Patrick's flair when we come back. Plus a debate among the team about the correct time for a daily tradition. We'll get to that next. Justice for Juicy. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hi, you mateys. May the wind always be at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face. May Sinead O'Connor be always in your headphones. And may your stomach be full of lucky charms. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this St. Patrick's Day. And that type of high-quality content is available every day for free on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast. And how could you resist that? Including bonus Benson on the weekends. That was Cookie, I guess, channeling a leprechaun or her Irish accent, which sounds an awful lot like a pirate, and sometimes sort of bleeds over into Jamaican territory, wanting to celebrate this day with all of you. And you would think if she had a better, more effective spirit animal that she conjures during her hypnosis, they might counsel her not to do things like that in public. But I guess George is just kind of loosey-goosey kind of guy. And therefore, we get performances like that from producer Christine. Happy St. Patrick's Day, producer Christine. I know that you're Italian, allegedly. Um, But based on your food tastes and a few other things, I think deep down, genetics aside, you're an Irish girl. Well, don't forget, Judgy Joyce is Irish, eh? Oh, so you're – we're still doing this? Is that what's happening? I'm done. Um, That was just a little – Cookie just gave a little Irish slash cookie blessing for our audience. You know, I, I heard that. I think we all we all got that. Um, please send. This is where we need Christine to have her own Twitter feed because I want to direct offended audience members to somewhere where they can voice their pleasure or displeasure with Christine that is not showing up on our social media because poor Quiet White is the one who has to monitor that stuff. It's not Christine. She barely knows what a computer is. So – you know, if you're if you're tweeting at us or following us on Instagram at Guy Benson Show, Christine almost never sees that stuff. I feel like Cookie needs her own Twitter feed. And you've threatened to do this before, Christine. I think it might be time. All right. Well, we will. How about tomorrow? 
How about if War Wyatt allows it? Because I think he was disgusted when he when we were editing things before the show and he heard my Irish blessing. He he wasn't a fan at all. So we'll discuss with him tomorrow in the meeting. But maybe we can talk about this on home stretch and we can finally set me up with a uh, twi- is it Twitter feed. Twitter account. Yeah, a Twitter account. A Twitter account. We have to think about the handle. We have to think about what kind of emojis you might use. Uh, we can, yes, we can perhaps discuss that tomorrow, and then we can ascend folks that way. Because there are probably Irish Americans listening right now who are underwhelmed by that impression. In fact, I've heard from some of our listeners in Ireland. So God knows what they're going to think about this. And I would love to just be like, oh, yeah, uh, Feel free to reply at, you know, whatever, Kremlin cookie or whatever the handle might be. And then people, the people can have their say. I think that seems fair. Uh, You guys were commuting into New York. You and Dan were commuting into the city today. I was commuting out of the city to get back to Washington, D.C. And I think what we all saw was Midtown Manhattan filled with people wearing green. It was not a particularly nice day in New York. And it did appear to me that some of these folks were arriving, for example, in Penn Station in New York, having already indulged perhaps in some alcoholic beverage consumption. And this was at like 10 a.m. Does that sound right, Christine? How many beers did you have on the train this morning? I, I as you know, I'm not a day drinker, so none. Mm. Plus the bosses, you know, a while back said. Do I know that? I'm sorry. That you just... Uh, you are in, in court, I would object, and I would say she's asserting facts, not in evidence. I do not know that you're not a day drinker. In fact, I would speculate otherwise. I'm really not. I'm not, I'm not a big day drinker. but Not a big one. I think from time to time, though. Yes, from time to time. For example, for example now that I'm remembering this, you once said oh, no. during the teeth of the pandemic – I think we did a topic where we we're saying, what is the first thing you would want to do when things get back to normal? And we had people calling in, oh, I want to go see my kids. I want to go to a big meal in a restaurant. Your answer was you wanted to go during the day into a dark bar and order cocktails in a dark bar during daylight hours. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, but that's it's not necessarily about the day drinking. I want to I just want the optics of like being bright and sunny and me going into like the darkest bar ever and just drinking, you know. Mm. You could be so my that is by definition day drinking, what you just described. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Your, yes, your number one fantasy during COVID. Yes, I would I just like to note. That. I would like to note that's a pretty good callback on my part, but it's nothing compared to the archives that War Wyatt has because we were discussing yesterday the personality quiz, and people can go back and listen to the home stretch on the podcast. It'll be on Bonus Benson. This personality quiz: How easy are you to get along with? And Wyatt, based on this science, on his own self-assessment, out of the four of people on this team on the air. Wyatt was the least easy person to get along with in his own tests. And one of the metrics on the test was, do you basically keep a memory bank of stuff to use against people? And I think Quiet Wyatt keeps extremely rigorous notes. He is uh, very, very careful. He, he develops binders filled with dossiers about each of us. And, Christine, you should see the stack of binders he has just about you. I mean, it almost goes to the ceiling. So that's why he was able to pull out yesterday 
the example that you were mysteriously, quote, out sick or something on St. Patrick's Day last year. That was right there in the binder. And he does his research overnight when he has his inflatable mattress in his, uh, his sleeping bag here in the studio during the war. I have to say right now, I, I would tend to agree with all of that about War Wyatt. Yeah. And I did yeah. call War Wyatt this afternoon and politely said, I, I need my YY back. This, this, is, this can't keep going. See, Wyatt right now has his normal cell phone, and then he has a red hotline that lights up red, and it makes like a <clears throat> sound effect in case there's very important news. Right? Like that's like, you know, the Kremlin's calling. Although I think you have one of those in your house too, Cookie. In any case, in any case, uh, how much drunkenness did you see in New York from the people this morning, like prior to noon? A little bit, right? I saw some today for sure. I definitely saw um, the woohoo girls. You know, they were all in their cable knit cream sweaters, but then they had, you know, all the they. A lot of people, which I love, I is the necklace with the shot glass attached to it. Sometimes. Oh, it's uh, very efficient because then you can't lose it, right? You. You're likely to lose your shot glass in the course of a uh, stumbling day of St. Patrick's Day drinking, and so you just have it physically attached to your body. I mean, it's genius. Genius. Um, (laughs) They had all, you know, the St. Patty's glasses, the hats, the light-ups, you know, and then the beers in the paper bag. They were ready to go, and I'm telling you, I wish I was friends with those girls. It would have been nice. We would have had a Did you consider calling out, like, oh, I've, I've... Become sick uh, on the train, and Megan, Megan's hurt, and uh, the the apartment flooded. So sorry, uh, you know War Wyatt can produce a show, and then you're just off for a day on the town with these woo girls. I have a feeling none of you would have believed it, especially War Wyatt, and I don't need that. In the oh, dossier. none of us would have believed it, but but you still. Well, the, I mean, you're cooked already. The dossier. I mean, at this point, it's just like if there were ever a show trial, it would be over. I mean, it would it would take it would take an hour at most, uh, unanimous conviction by the jury of one, War Wyatt. He's he's judge, jury and executioner in this scenario. But I think you at least considered it. You you looked at them longingly on the train with their very inconspicuous paper bag drinks at ten in the morning or earlier, right nine in the morning, and you were like, ugh, maybe I should just break free, and go with them. They, they looked like they were setting themselves up for a very nice day. It was definitely I, a lot I'm older. I'm not sure about that. If you are drinking in the morning, those days rarely end well. So the only thing I could say about day drinking is they, those people are probably going to be passed out by 5 p.m. tonight. So they're going to get a solid, you know, 12, 13 hours of sleep. Yeah, but assuming that they have a place to sleep, because if they're <laughs> commuting into the city— for a bunch of drinking, they have to get back to wherever they're from. And when you start getting really tired or whatever, like you might not be where you want to be, such as the comfort of your own bed. Yeah, I've been there. I know that. I just want, before we go, I just need to know, <laughs> many a time, I just need to know, does War Wyatt take off? Wyatt, Wyatt is taking a note, by the way, after that. <laughs> many a time. Many, many In direct a time. quotes. He filed that one away. Go ahead. Does he take his war hat off tonight, and does he go out for St. Patty's Day, or is it we just don't, we're not celebrating any holidays right now? Well, Christine, I'm a little upset that you didn't mention. I'm just going to deflect from that question since they're on the record. I'm going to deflect and say, why didn't you order the inflatable Irish pub venue to come to your house for um, 
this holiday. Did you see I sent that story the other day? So you could, you, It's an inflatable, but she lives in an apartment now. That's why. She can't. She can't do the inflatables anymore because she doesn't live in a house and she doesn't have a yard that she can control anymore. That's the reality. Now, what I might do, I might have one beer this evening colored green. Or maybe I'll just wait till tomorrow. I'm trying not to drink on weekdays. I'm like back to that. They'll they'll put some green food coloring in a beer tomorrow on the 18th, won't they? That's my goal. That's how I will celebrate this holiday that I don't really celebrate. By the way, we teased before this segment a a survey, a different survey about when people eat dinner. And we're going to have a whole conversation about it. And it was a map of Europe, people eating early at like 4 p.m. for dinner in Norway or 9.30 p.m. in Spain. Uh, we have no time for that. We spent all of this nonsense segment on other things, and that whole conversation either has to be put on hold or discarded altogether. So I'll say this. Dinner time in my book ideally is like 7.30 or 8. And that's the final answer and the final word. On The Guy Benson Show, back here tomorrow for the Friday edition. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.